The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 1, Part 2, Where Power Now Resides Unrestrained. Australians may not, in the main, be familiar with their constitution, but those that have some knowledge of it would probably assume that there are checks and balances built into it that are intended to moderate abuses of power. They might assume that the High Court will moderate the Parliament if it tends to excess. But in terms of changes to powers and the sorts of laws that can be made, the Constitution is no longer effective as a moderator, if it ever was. It is the law governing the topics and areas in which the different levels of parliaments, state or federal, shall be able to make laws, and in some cases it limits how laws may and may not be made. But in that capacity, it is predisposed at its worst to allow the making of laws which are racist and discriminatory, and which thereby distribute power unfairly or take it away entirely. It is designed in such a way as to embed inequality, particularly inequality before the law, and plainly to trash cultural values on the basis of race, no matter how dearly values of equality may be held or how necessary they may be for social cohesion in Australia's multicultural society. Had women been considered a threat to power, the Constitution may well have been designed to trash cultural values on the basis of gender too, that since the designers were obsessively afraid of non-whites and entirely unafraid of women, the questions of embedding inequality for them, or even a mention of them, didn't arise. Tussles over power that have arisen since 1901 have therefore left room for equality before the law on the basis of gender, but not on the basis of race. In both sorts of tussles, however, the Constitution really only facilitated power for one group, and it wasn't women or non-whites. Although it will not seem so because of the 44 referendum questions put to Australians to amend their constitution since 1901, only eight have been approved by the people, tussles over power in constitutional matters at referendums or in the courts or in the legislature or in federal state negotiations have tended to result in shifts of power away from the people and upwards to the federal parliament and federal executive government. Australians may have tried to stop the gradual concentration of power towards the top of the political chain by rejecting referendum proposals which appear as attempts to shift it upwards, but in the main they have failed. It is a major problem at the heart of the Constitution that it facilitates, or at least leaves the way open, for more centralisation than devolution of power. In these tussles, it is the Federal Parliament and Executive Government that have generally emerged victorious, drawing more power into themselves and further away from the possibility of interference from or moderation by both the people and other parties to the Constitution, particularly the states. The concentration of power in the Federal Parliament and Executive Government is, of course, not simply a result of a messy constitution. It has also arisen from coincidental deals between the elected and non-elected powers which dominate our capitalist society, namely 
large private corporations, and particularly in Australia, a heavily concentrated corporate news media. But it is the Constitution that has allowed these deals to build up so that, as exchanges of power, they are dirtier and more exclusive by the year. It is now not an indefensible proposition to say, as American President Joe Biden did in 2022, that media mogul Rupert Murdoch is, quote, the most dangerous man in the world, unquote, inasmuch as he might represent the apogee of unelected and entirely unaccountable power. It is not unreasonable because he is a person who exercises inordinate influence with no corresponding obligation to act in the national interest. And President Biden is not the only world leader to articulate the danger posed by Murdoch and his soon-to-be-imposed dynastic heir and successor, son Lachlan. Former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, in his testimony to a Senate inquiry into media diversity in Australia in 2021, also asserted that Rupert Murdoch now holds governments in fear and trembling. He said, quote, Everyone's frightened of Murdoch. They really are. There's a culture of fear across the country. The truth is, as Prime Minister, I was still fearful of the Murdoch media beast. When did I stop being fearful? Probably when I walked out of the building in 2013. No one should be frightened of Murdoch, but I can tell you, he's a frightening kind of guy because of the power he wields. Unquote. This is testimony to which we should give credit. Those like Kevin Rudd, who have worked at the centre of power, will know who holds it, and in the 21st century, it isn't them. A later Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, may have put another view about where power lies. In his view, it lies in a place he insists it shouldn't, in the United Nations. Hence, he invade in 2019 against the UN, characterising it, unconvincingly, as, quote, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy demanding conformity rather than cooperation on global issues, unquote. And in laying that charge against the UN, Morrison appointed himself to a mission to counter the said unjustifiable hegemony, asserting that, quote, only a national government, especially one accountable through the ballot box and the rule of law, can define its national interests. We can never answer to a higher authority than the people of Australia. Unquote. The posturing here implied that the UN was demanding some sort of ignominious conformity from sovereign nations rather than peaceful cooperation, and therefore the UN was demanding that nations surrender their sovereignty. This assertion denied the plain fact that when Australia became a member of the United Nations, it signed on to become part of an organisation whose charter included Article 2.1, which says the organisation is based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all its members, and Article 2.7, which says, quote, nothing contained in the present charter shall authorise the United Nations to intervene in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state or shall require the members to submit such matters to settlement under the present charter, unquote. In short, 
the UN has never demanded conformity of its members or by its members to anything other than what they have freely agreed to. It has never sought to drag power away from its member nations. If anything, the UN Charter works the other way around. In signing on to it, freely, members simply agree that for purposes of maintaining international peace and security, and only those purposes, they will act in conformity with the principles of justice and international law. Again, no ceding of sovereignty is required. Power does not reside with the prejudicially described unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy of the UN, and we have no need of Mr Morrison's attempts to defend us against its purported encroachments. This is not to say that power does not reside with other internationalist bureaucracies that are far more unaccountable than the UN, such as the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank and other economic agencies of, or controlled by, the US government. It's just that it doesn't reside where Mr Morrison claimed. The UN only has the power its members freely give it. By contrast, US-controlled economic institutions exercise coercive power wherever they can. As a range of economic historians have documented, a Washington-centred and controlled consensus emerged in the 1970s and 1980s as, quote, the liberalisation policy agenda prescribed to and imposed on developing countries by Washington-based institutions such as the IMF, the World Bank and the economic agencies of the US government. This included fiscal austerity, trade liberalisation, deregulisation of financial and labour markets and privatisation of state enterprises. As argued by Joseph E. Stiglitz and Jagdish Bhagwati, among others, from the 1970s onwards, the IMF and other Washington-based institutions effectively morphed into tools of US economic imperialism. Unquote. That is international power in full swing, and it entirely marginalises the UN. Of course, Mr Morrison's speech conveniently ignored all of that. Instead, he attempted to propel a popular discourse at the time that national sovereignty and democratic values would be surrendered if Australia cooperated with nations like China, a discourse which in turn ignored the plain fact that our domestic interests will inhere in global agreements being amicably reached, especially with China, which is now Australia's biggest trading partner by far. In an irretrievably globalised world, those domestic interests cannot be furthered otherwise than by cooperation and indeed by a particular and rather limited type of conformity, namely conformity to international law, the thing Australia pledged in 1945 to uphold under the Charter of the United Nations and the Statute of the International Court of Justice. Nevertheless, the Morrison speech was an attempt to reject the need to abide by the very rules Australia had worked hard as a UN member to set up after World War II. But the speech also functioned as cover for the real unaccountable power Mr Morrison was seeking to elevate, corporate power. In the 2020s, it is plain for all Australians to see, since nobody bothers to hide it, that 
multinational corporations and moguls, plutocrats, now wield overwhelming control in global and domestic markets and over parliaments, and do so without admitting obligations either to conformity to law or cooperation on global issues, and certainly without admitting any obligation to a national interest, democratic values, or for that matter, to humankind. Given the extent of corporate power in Australia and worldwide, it is not unreasonable to conclude that there is a kind of misanthropy or aggrieved insanity in Scott Morrison's encouragement of Australians to distrust not corporations but governments and the United Nations, as he did again in 2022 after the demise of his government. Addressing a group of Pentecostal faithful in Perth, he loudly preached that, quote, We don't trust in governments. We don't trust in the United Nations, thank goodness. Unquote. In effect, once he had been deposed from the power vested in the national government, a power he had sought to elevate in 2019, Mr Morrison recanted his thereto dearly held belief that we can never answer to a higher authority than the people of Australia, and newly proclaimed that we must never answer to a lower authority than God. In doing so, he was doing nothing less than attempting to build support for and legitimise in advance any actions that may be taken by an individual or community to undermine duly elected governments. At the same time, he was surely doing nothing less than enjoining people to disregard any obligations of conformity to international law, to agreements we have made and to covenants our governments have signed under the auspices of the UN, such as the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. In his address to the Perth Pentecostals, it was as though human laws must be subordinate to some sort of divine law, as though the laws we make by international agreement mean nothing, as though a democracy must give way to a theocracy, and as though we should aspire to becoming a state subject to church rule. In plain sight on that day in Perth, Scott Morrison was discouraging peaceful cooperation with other nations. In canting that God, his God presumably, was the only legitimate authority, and that, quote, God's kingdom will come, unquote, to overthrow mere earthly governments, Morrison called on worshippers to put their faith in religion above other institutions like government. This sermon published as it was beyond the walls of the church building, called out to people to withdraw from cooperation in international institutions and to disregard the importance of the role that Morrison himself grudgingly acknowledged they play. It called out to people to assert the church, his church, over the state, to invalidate anything arising from the secular state, which Australia is, and to put their faith in no institution of cooperation built by humankind. Although Morrison's speech seemed to champion the establishment of Australia as a theocracy, his preaching could have no other effect than to give free reign to the only power likely to be left standing if all of his wishes were to be miraculously granted and fallible earthly governments were swept away. That power likely to be left standing is corporate power. 
In the sweep of history, this is a kind of madness that began with capitalism itself, but which reached a zenith when neoliberalism began to remove all restraints on the potential excesses of capitalism by its focus on deregulation and free markets. In order to encourage corporations to invest, corporations operating in the capitalist empires of the British and the Dutch were given rights in the 17th century to limit their liability to the amount of their investment and nothing more. In other words, with the introduction of limited liability, corporations were released from liability for the funds of any other investor, such as governments, taxpayers and depositors in their banks, and for the risks and injuries associated with their corporate activities. As such, corporations worldwide can now shunt all risk away from themselves and keep all profits to themselves. This limitation of liability has been slowly and legally extended by unscrupulous corporations who have played with rules designed to constrain them appropriately, with varying degrees of success through history. For instance, corporations gained so much influence during the American Civil War that shortly before his death, Abraham Lincoln lamented what he saw happening with the following resounding prophecy. He said, quote, Corporations have been enthroned. An era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power will endeavour to prolong its reign by working on the prejudices of the people until wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. Unquote. In short, Lincoln anticipated the demise of America's republic as a state in which supreme power is held by the elected representatives of the people and its replacement with a corporate monarch. He also anticipated the means by which the replacement would be achieved, that is, by media moguls working on the prejudices of the people. Despite Lincoln's fears, the rules in America were boosted further in corporations' favour in 1886, when the US Supreme Court designated corporations as persons entitled to the protection of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment to the US Constitution was enacted to give equal rights to former slaves enfranchised after the Civil War. In summary, it stated that, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, unquote. No such rights to status as humans have been extended to corporations in Australia's Constitution yet, but even so, with the rise of neoliberalism, that is, largely unregulated capitalism, multinational corporations have come to fully rival governments in strength in Australia and almost everywhere else in the world. They have attained sovereign status and may be the only power left standing with that status, or at least they will be, if the constitutions of democratic nations are not reset to prevent the overreach of their power. If corporations are not to be enthroned permanently, as Lincoln feared, the people of nation-states will need to redesign constitutions that ensure they are not afforded human status, and indeed status over humans. 
We tend to think of corporations as being comprised of human beings who, by extension, must be capable of ethics, empathy and care for others and a basic willingness to behave well and lawfully. But they are actually inhuman, abstract, almost untraceable entities with a single focus of maximising financial returns. Their will is amorphous but entirely alien to humans. As renowned author and cultural historian Jeremy Lent has observed, large multinational corporations are, quote, theoretically immortal, cannot be put in prison, and are not constrained by the laws of any individual country, with equivalent rights to humans, in America at least, but with the incalculable advantage of their superhuman powers, corporations have literally taken over the world. They have grown so massive that 53 of the largest 100 economies in the world are corporations. Along with their vast power, corporations have imposed on the world a set of values arising from their overriding objective to maximise financial returns at odds with many intrinsic human values, unquote. Corporations are therefore the equivalent of countries we can't find. There are people behind them, of course, but not people we can get hold of, much less draw into a system of conformance to laws which protect the public interest. Their values are utterly inhuman, and they in no way identify with the public interest. This makes it all the more irresponsible for a former Prime Minister of an advanced sovereign nation like Australia to disparage rather than honour the office Australians granted to him and to encourage his congregation not to trust in institutions like the United Nations, which was established to ensure that countries can seek each other out physically for the purposes of cooperating to build a secure future for all mankind, not just for a few plutocrats. It is not just irresponsible, it is insanity to disparage the value of human cooperation, especially at a time when the world as we know it is unlikely to survive unless humans cooperate. In this sweep of history, we have washed up in a place where the power exercised by concentrated corporate media and neoliberal hegemony in 21st century Australia is far greater than any power we the people may exercise within our constitution to control any excesses of an elected executive government or parliament. Corporate power has grown so mighty that Australians might be justly frightened of it, so wholly unaccountable as it is. Many have expressed a desire to rein it in, including more than 500,000 people who, in 2020, signed the petition launched by former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, calling for a royal commission into the Murdoch media empire and its dominance of the Australian news market. Other types of corporate power are also, and not a minute too soon, coming under fire, including the power of multinational giants to evade tax, the power to increase corporate profits while suppressing the shares of wealth that are being returned to Australians, the power to privatise taxpayer-owned assets, the power to monopolise markets via the forced introduction of laws and policies which are inherently anti-competitive in their effect, 
the power to outlaw industrial action and the power of international weapons manufacturers to skew national budgets away from essential services and trap Western nations into seemingly endless debt and war. All of these corporate powers now need to be reined in. Regardless of whether Rupert Murdoch is really the most dangerous man in the world, the fact that a US president can, in a moment of candour, single him out as such, is indicative of a societal awakening to the inordinate power of corporations. Murdoch has become a synecdoche for burgeoning destructive power, power that is monstrous and out of control. He has become the image of it in all its ugliness. In Australia, that sort of power is out of control in large part because of the total inadequacy of a constitution that passively grants, because it does not disallow, grossly disproportionate power to an unelected few at the same time as it provides no possibility that such a power can be reined in by the people, or for that matter, by the judicature or the states. Australia's constitution leaves Australians defenceless against the abuse of power and the exercise of it in a manner that is contrary to the public interest. So in the next section, I will begin to sketch the better arrangement of power that will be necessary, and soon, if we are to improve our defences against the misuse of power, but also to strengthen the capacity of our democracy to help us secure a better future. <laughs>